1 John chapter number 5 this evening, 1 John chapter number 5. We looked at last week, John chapter number 15, and the one who was speaking was Jesus calling his disciples to abide. And we looked at how Jesus did nothing in his earthly public ministry without the emphasis upon the Holy Spirit. We saw that he was baptized in Matthew chapter 3 coming up out of the water and the Holy Spirit descending upon him like a dove. We saw the next event with nothing intervening but genealogies. We move right into Matthew chapter 4. He was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness, was tempted of the devil. He was victorious over the devil because he was led by the Spirit and because of his dependence upon the power of the Word of God. And we find him going into the synagogue. We see him going in preaching, um, being led again by the Holy Spirit, preaching his first message from Isaiah 61 on the Holy Spirit. We find him casting out demons in the power of the Holy Spirit. He rejoiced in the power of the Holy Spirit. Hebrews 9 says he went to the cross in the power of the Holy Spirit. Everything that Jesus did, and Peter summed up his life in one verse, saying that he did it by the power and an independence upon the Holy Spirit. And the point we were making was if Jesus, being fully God, was dependent upon the Holy Spirit, how much more should we? And so that's the one Jesus saying to his disciples, without me, ye can do nothing. We saw the disciples, the ones he's speaking to, and these were men who were saved men. These were educated men sitting at the feet of Jesus for several years. They understood theology. They were equipped men. They knew how to draw a crowd. These men who were saved and educated and equipped, and in John chapter 20, after the resurrection, they were filled with the Holy Spirit there in the upper room, but yet Jesus said to them, you still need something more. And he told them in Acts chapter 1 that they were to wait for the promise of the Father, and that is they needed the power of the Holy Spirit. If these saved men who walked with Jesus, educated by Jesus, equipped by him, knew the ropes, knew how to conduct services, and if these men had all of that, yet Jesus said they still needed something more, how much more do we? And Jesus said, abide. But we saw before we got to abide, he mentioned the need to be clean. Verse number 3 of John chapter 15 and we see it's the same word that, that we find in verse number one, purgeth. Uh, he that, that bears fruit, he purgeth it, that it would bring forth more fruit. The one that doesn't bear fruit, he will lift them up so that they can be in a place of fruit bearing. Jesus says, whichever category you're in, you're one of his. You're not bearing fruit. You are bearing fruit. Either way, he's hands on with you because he wants you to be connected to him. He wants you to stay connected to him, and the key is getting clean. You get clean not for the sake of being clean. You get clean so you can stay connected to Jesus, Amen. to abide. And we said the word abide comes from the Greek word minnow. Minnow is found 112 times in the New Testament. John uses it 66 out of the 112 times. To understand the word abide, to understand the concept of abide, 
We needed to understand the concept that it comes from is the concept of faith. Faith. That's very simple. Almost all the world knows of the concept of faith. But what we must get a hold of is God's concept of faith and not just ours. You can't be saved apart from faith. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. But you tell most people that you may see around here, you see somebody at the store tonight and you say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. A lot of times their response is, oh, I believe. Because the, the human concept of faith and believe merely means so often I understand or I agree. And it is true when it comes to the Bible concept that you have to understand and agree with truth. But Jesus' concept, the Bible's weight of faith, is much more than just understanding and just agreeing. It means to depend. It's to depend. Hebrews 11 describes faith dependence. It's the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things not seen. In other words, it is something that is convinced of what he says to be true. We were not there when the worlds were created, but we know it because he said so. And we have a whole chapter in chapter 11 of men and women who lived by dependence upon God. Peter stepped out of the boat in dependence upon God. How was it that he was empowered and enabled to walk on water? He abide. He abode. He was connected. Why did he sink? He was disconnected. He stopped abiding. See, if faith means to depend, then abide means keep on depending. Now, faith is the key, not just in understanding abiding, it's the key. Jesus is reminding the disciples in the book of John, the book of John is about believing on him, that you would believe him. If you're not saved and you want to read the Bible, read John, the gospel of John. If you're saved, you want to grow, read the gospel of John. Because both is about, for both saved and unsaved, is so that we would have confidence in him. If you're not saved, you need to exercise faith, trust, dependence upon him to save your soul. But when we get saved, it doesn't end. We don't cease to need to exercise faith. We don't cease to need to make transactions of faith. And so let me look at a familiar passage with you tonight in 1 John chapter 5. Because not only do we get saved by faith, but I want us to see that we also receive assurance of salvation by faith. Why is that important? Because we live, Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6, if you're going to please God, by faith. You can't live the Christian life by faith if you've not entered the Christian life by faith. You can't live the Christian life by faith if you've entered it by faith and you've been saved, but you don't have assurance. And you doubt. 
The lack of security is going to rob you of certainty in order to be effective in abiding in Him. And so 1 John chapter 5, note with me, verse number 9, if we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God which He hath testified of His Son. He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar. Because he believeth not the record that God gave of his Son. And this is the record. That God hath given to us eternal life and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life. And he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that ye may know that ye have eternal life and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. Well, familiar passage to many, great passage for all of us. I want us to see tonight this matter of assurance. I mentioned it at OPSAT that there are many ways in which people will look to get assurance of salvation. Many things I've heard that people will do to point to to help somebody who's struggling with the matter of assurance. And one of the things that they're doing is they're pointing to evidences that might be in their life. And so if they have an evidence of salvation, they'll point to that as something you can hang your hat on, something that can help you so that you would have assurance of your salvation. I want us to see tonight what I believe to be the infallible, without error, test as to whether or not you're saved. There are lots of tests. There are a lot of tests that have been given. I have a tract in my study that was written by a preacher, and it gives five ways to know you're saved. But they're not infallible. They're not error-proof. That's why I think it's very important that our tracts are very clear. I remember years ago looking at a, at a tract rack, and, and I saw a tract that said five things you must do to get saved. I saw another tract right under it said, three things you must do to get saved. I thought, well, I'd go with the three-tier tract over the five-tier tract if I had a choice. Well, oftentimes we make what God has made to be simple, we make it somewhat complicated. And we're trying to explain it, but sometimes only a saved person can really understand some of the ways in which we articulate what God has ultimately made clear. And so I want us to kind of walk through tonight and, and, and jar your thinking. And if it opens up a can of worms, good. I hope we can close it. But, but let me challenge your thinking. Our thinking needs to be challenged. We saw this morning, we ought to gird up the loins of our mind. We're going to have to uh, uncover uh, the things that have been 
maybe causing us to run this race and think clearly and think right about what God says. How does a person get saved? By faith. When is it that a person is saved? Often here when it comes to vacation Bible school, we have neighborhood Bible time. I've been around enough places to where somebody may say something after the fact and regarding the number of kids who got saved and they will say, I wonder how many of those actually got saved. Well, Bible has an answer for that. When does a person actually get saved? Well, 1 John 5 told us, when you get the Son, he that hath the Son hath life. Well, that causes us to ask another question. How do you get the Son? Well, there's what the gospel is answering. 1 Corinthians 15, 3, Christ died for our sins and was buried and resurrected the third day according to the scriptures. And the word gospel, verse number one of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, moreover, I declare unto you the gospel. The word gospel literally means good news. So often I've heard it preached as though it was bad news. Now certainly there's some bad news in it. Christ died for our sin. Christ died. Sin is the problem. Death and hell is the consequence. You've got to understand the bad news to get to the good news. Christ. Jesus is the answer. You want to know you have Jesus You've got to understand the gospel. Sin is the problem. Hell is the consequence. Jesus is the answer. And when you understand and agree that sin is your problem and hell is your consequence and Jesus and only Jesus can be the answer, then the only choice in response to that is faith, trust, dependence, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. So that whenever a person puts their faith and trust dependence upon Jesus, he does what he said he would do. He forgives them of their sin. He gives eternal life. He credits his righteousness to their account. So that a person gets the son when they put their faith and trust and dependence upon Jesus for salvation. So that then he that hath the Son hath life. You don't have the Son, you don't have life. It, it's pretty simple. When does a person get saved? When they put their dependence upon Jesus. How does a person get saved? By depending upon Jesus. Putting your faith and trust dependence upon him. Salvation. It only happens when you exercise faith in Jesus Christ. Someone says, that sounds very simple. Good. Because it is. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. See, religion is about what you and I must do. Salvation is what Jesus already did. And what he offers to us as a gift. Now, when it comes to the matter of salvation that answers the question how do I get eternal life how do I get eternal life 
The answer is by depending upon the only one who can give it. Depend upon Jesus. He that hath the Son hath life. Salvation answers the question, how do I get eternal life? Now, the matter of assurance, it answers another question. Assurance answers the question, how can I know it? Salvation answers, how do I get eternal life? Well, you get it by depending upon Jesus. How does a person get to heaven? It can only be by the one who can get you there. Well, how's he going to get me there? By salvation. How do I get saved? Sin is your problem. Hell's consequence. Jesus is the answer. You understand. You agree. You come to the point. You don't want your sin. You don't want to go to hell. You need Jesus. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Thou shalt be saved. You put your faith, trust, dependence upon Jesus. He always does what he said he would do. He saves. He that hath the Son hath life. When do we get the Son? When you put your faith, trust, dependence upon Him to save. Salvation, how do I get eternal life? By dependence upon the Savior. Assurance of salvation, it answers the question, how can I know it? Look at 1 John 5, 13 again. These things have I written unto you that you may know. All right, let me ask you a question. Is it possible to be saved and not know that you're saved? Some of you are saying, is that a trick question? Mm, kind of. First John, is he writing to save people or lost people? He is writing to save people. And he says, so even in that context, he's referring to save people. He says to save people, these things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God. What does that mean? That means those who've put their faith, trust, dependence upon Jesus to save them. He says, I've written this to you that you would now know it. Well, if it's not possible to not always know it, he would not have needed to do that. Let me ask it this way. This is a little bit, this will alleviate the, uh, the, the, the constraint there. Has anyone, since you've been saved, has anyone ever doubted for a moment their salvation? Would you raise your hand? That's what he's referring to. Sometimes we doubt, and at that moment of doubt, we're not knowing it. All right, now why is it that we doubt? Why is it that I've doubted? Let me walk through a little bit of this with you. And if any of this makes you mad, still pastor appreciation, so you got to appreciate it anyway. And, but, but stay with me, let me challenge. A lot of times... The doubting that takes place, I think, it comes from bad preaching. I really think there's been a lot of bad preaching that has culminated into people doubting. For example, sometimes you may hear preaching that says nice phrases, 
and phrases that make sense, but when we try to make the application, we end up doing some gymnastics that we have to do some pulling and pushing and twisting that doesn't quite harmonize with God's Word. Here's a statement. Um, if your faith... If your faith did not change your life, it didn't save your soul. Now, I'm all for God's changing of life. I'm all for transformation. Peter talks about it. Paul talks about it. Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. But oftentimes what's happening is in preaching, preaching is mixing discipleship concepts and mixing them in with salvation text. Here's an example. I heard a message, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. All things are become new. And if there are sins that you're doing today since you've been saved that you were doing before you got saved, you're really not saved. He says all things, be, all things become new. Don't you believe your King James Bible? All things become new. I want to tell you, you say it loud enough and bark loud enough and long enough and you hit on that. While you don't, the preacher many times doesn't have to explain it. It sounds good because it's what it says but then all it does is causes a person to say, well, maybe I didn't really get it. And so I'm going to get it now. I'm really going to get in. Well, you say, but what, what is he talking about? Well, Paul's talking about, remember this morning, what Peter did? Paul's talking about the indicatives before he gets to the imperatives. That's the whole context. The indicatives, in other words, is, what you have and what you are in Jesus. And he says anybody who's in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, you don't see, you can't see in Christ. He's talking about something that is just as real as you and the person sitting next to you, but he's talking about your position in Christ. And the moment you got in Christ, everything changed. Death to life, darkness to light. In fact, Louis, uh, Louis Berry Schaefer said, what was it, like 30-some things happened at the very moment of salvation? He's talking about all things changed. My name, my nature, all of that changed. You say, well, that's, that's, that's what we're saying. And, and that means even your sin and even your struggles and even your temptation. So why in the name of common sense would Paul have been preaching the rest of the book about don't do this. Stop doing this. Because it's not automatic in the living. Your nature changed. Everything changed. Peter says grow in grace. What is that? That's an imperative. Why would he say grow if it is automatic? Because it's not automatic. 
Salvation, it's a done deal if you put your faith and trust in Jesus. But discipleship and growing requires a cooperation. That's why Peter said this morning, you've got to gird up the loins of your mind. You've got to have spiritual sobriety so that you can hope for the grace. It's just another way of saying what Jesus said in John 15, get clean and stay connected to me. Why? Because it's not automatic. Peter's the one who heard Jesus say that in John 15 in the upper room and went out and denied the Lord. Why? Because it's not automatic. But salvation is a done deal. See, the, the preaching it sometimes comes because of wrong books and commentaries. And I don't want to get too far into this, but I want you to understand there is an element of theology known as Reformed theology Reformed theology is the soteriological arm of Calvinism. Soteriological is the salvation strain of Calvinism. In Calvinism, you, you have this, this acrostic tulip, and Dr. Childs has written a paper we gave out in the men's meeting about it, and, and, and he gives these five points, T-U-L-I-P, and it, it begins with total depravity, and he talks about unconditional election. He talks about limited atonement, meaning that God will only save the ones that he wants to save. Irresistible grace. And if he's called your number, you cannot resist and you cannot reject him for anything. But it ends with P, T-U-L-I-P, perseverance of the saints. Perseverance of the saints teaches if you're saved, you will live like it. And you read a lot of the commentaries. In fact, most commentaries on 1 John are written with a reformed slant. And they will say 1 John was written so that you can know you're saved. And five chapters in 1 John are five tests of salvation. And I think, oh how much they've robbed of the value of 1 John. 1 John, he tells us right out of the gate in chapter number one, is so that we can fellowship with Jesus. But there's something about Calvinism, Reformed theology, that they will make this matter of knowing Jesus to be synonymous with salvation. In fact, many Calvinists teach John 15, abide simply means get saved. So that if you're not abiding, you're not saved. I, I, I don't want to go too deep or too much over our head, but I want you to see this is miles apart from where we are as biblicists. Now, you say, well, how are these deep, intellectual, Bible-loving people so far off? Well, here's the reason why. is because Calvinist Reformed theology, they hold to a system and they put the Bible through their system. What we are, we're biblicists. And we take whatever system, we've put it through the Bible. And so you take whatever, Arminianism, Calvinism, I'm neither one because we're biblicists. But someone who looks at this system, the system can make sense in and of itself. There's where cults come from. Every cult is a cult who uses the King James Bible and something else, and they have this system. 
And their system can be refuted if they would just stick with the Bible. But they have another system. The Reformed theology, and somebody says, well, I'm not a Calvinist, but something has gotten into a lot of our preaching over the years and into the camp meetings and into the other areas known as lordship salvation. Now, someone's accused me of preaching lordship salvation because I preach that Jesus is Lord. No, that's called Bible. He is Lord. But lordship salvation, what it says a lot of times is, if he is not yielded to as Lord in everything in your life, then you were never saved. And so then there's this undue emphasis that's placed often on repentance. You say you don't believe in repentance? I believe in repentance. You can't exercise faith without repentance. But understand repentance is not to be a work. But a lot of times the preaching is made out to be, making repentance out to be a work. Somebody says, unless you turned from all of your sin, you're not really saved. In fact, I've, this is the one that's probably used most often when somebody's come to me and they will say, I don't know if I turned from all of my sin. I turned from the sins that I knew of at the time, but I don't know if I turned from all of my sin. Now listen, repentance in its core and essence is not turning from something. It's changing your mind. Now somebody will say, well, what about 1 Thessalonians chapter number one? I believe it's verse number 11 that says that they turned to God from idols. Well, what were the idols? The idols were not sin in their life. The idols were the object of their dependence. What did they turn from? They turned from Catholicism. They turned from good works. They turned from baptism. They turned from church membership. They turned from whatever their dependence was upon, putting their dependence upon Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus said in Luke chapter 5 and verse number 30, 31, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners unto repentance. And he said, those that are whole need not a physician, but those that are sick. See, he, he's using the concept of repentance in helping us understand what repentance is. And also this matter of how a person can receive, receive salvation through repentance. Repentance, he says is compared to a person who's sick. In order to repent of your sickness, what do you do? Stop being sick? No. You get sick of being sick, and you turn to the physician. Somebody's not well because of, look at how many pills I'm taking. They're not constituted as well because of how many masks they wear. Repentance of sickness is saying, I'm tired of being sick. I'm going to turn to whatever answer there might be. And Jesus is saying, those who say I'm fine, I can't help them. Only those who are sick. And when a person realizes they're sick, they repent of that by turning to the physician for the physician to do the work in their life. 
But see, whenever there's that lordship idea and that, that, that emphasis upon, did you turn from all of your sin? I don't know that I had all the sin back when I was a child that I've had in my adulthood. But it's not turning from my sins that I'm committing. It is ultimately turning to Jesus who did something about all of my sin. When I was nine, I didn't know about pornography. But when Jesus died on the cross 2,000 years ago and he became sin for us, he knew all about our pornography. He knew about every sin that you still have in the future and he took care of it there. So what's our response? Repent, repent, depend, turn and depend upon him. See, the matter of perseverance of the saints, the Calvinists, the Reformed, TULIP, T-U-L-I-P, T-U-L-I-P, perseverance. It teaches that, that a person is saved, once they get saved, they're going to live like it regardless. They will persevere. If you don't, you are never saved. Now, now keep in mind, here's, you have Calvinism and Arminianism. They are two opposing on the opposite spectrums. Calvinists don't like Arminians. Arminians don't like Calvinist theology. Calvinism says, if you don't live like it, you never had it. Arminianism says, if you don't live like it, you'll lose it. Do you know what both of them do? They put the emphasis right back here. You know what Jesus is saying to us over and over and over again? Put, Jesus is saying, come to me. Abide in me. Trust me. See, the focus is upon Jesus preaching. One preacher said, if you've not spent time reading your Bible, if you've not read your Bible in the last month, you're probably not saved. Well, that'll, that, that, a person can feel guilty and convicted just by saying things. And the truth is, if you've not read your Bible in the past month, you may not be saved. But if you're not saved, it doesn't have anything to do with whether you read your Bible. If you're not saved, you're not saved because you never put your faith and trust dependence upon Jesus to be your Savior. Somebody says, if you don't know the date that you got saved, you're probably not saved. I've heard that. There are men sitting in this room who cannot tell me if I were to ask them right dead square in the eyeballs right now, what's your anniversary date? You can't tell me. But you're still married. See, being saved does not hinge upon whether you know the date. It hinges upon whether you know Jesus. Well, how do I know if I know him? Did you ever know sin was your problem? Hell was a consequence. Jesus was the answer. Did you ever know that, that there was a time when Jesus came, died for you, and he took your sin, and he offers you a gift, and you say, I don't want my sin. I don't want to go to hell. I need Jesus. And you put your faith and trust and dependence upon him to save you. If so, the Bible says, he that hath the Son has life. Yeah. Somebody said, well... 
I don't know if I meant it enough. When I was nine, I meant it all I knew to mean it. If I could get saved today, I think I'd mean it a little bit more now because I know a little bit more, but I meant it all I knew to mean it. When I got married 26 years ago, I meant it all I knew to mean it as a 25-year-old. If I were to get married today, I'd mean it a whole lot more now, but I meant it all I knew to mean it. He didn't qualify the degree of meaning it. He just said, believe him, take him, trust him. Somebody gives you a gift, you take it. We don't ask, well, how much did you mean it when you took it? The question is, did you get it? Did you take it? I don't know if I prayed the right prayer. That's fine because a prayer doesn't save you. Only Jesus can save. There was one hanging on the cross who said this, Lord, remember me. And Jesus not only remembered him, but saved him. I've led people to the Lord using a sinner's prayer, but I never used that one. I never said, hey, would you like to get saved? Sure would. Well, pray this after me. Lord, remember me. No, there's some better ways to articulate it, but the prayer is not what saves. It's Jesus that saves. Assurance of salvation is something that many will struggle with. And I believe the ones who struggle the most with salvation, knowing it, are the ones who are attempting to live for God. They want to. In my, my limited sphere of ministry, I can't think of a person who had wandered far from God, who didn't have a desire to really serve God. They were in that prodigal realm. They were in that backslidden realm. I don't remember many, if any, who were really concerned about whether they were saved. And if they were saved, they could say, here's when I got saved. But it's those who are tempting and trying and working at trying to please the Lord, when they get to that place of sensitivity, then there starts to be this, this uh, scrutiny upon their life and the devil begins to work. And how did the devil work his first work with the first creation of God, Adam and Eve? He did it through the subtlety of deception in their life. And he still does the same. And so that matter of assurance will sometimes be a problem with those who are trying to serve the Lord. In other words, there have been many, a Bible college student, many who are called to ministry that struggle. I remember preaching in a Bible college one time and a young man, he was a junior in Bible college. He came up to me, he said, Brother Ingram, he says, I've been struggling with this matter of salvation he says, I've struggled so many times. And he says, I have asked Jesus every day in chapel, as far as I can remember. Lord, if I didn't mean it then, I mean it now. Please save me. And he said, I wonder if I don't have assurance because I kept it to myself. And he says, I'm asking you, Brother Ingram, would you please pray with me? That if I didn't mean it then, I mean it now that the Lord would save me. I said, young man, absolutely not. And the reason why is what John told us there in 1 John 5. If you believe the witness of man, if you believe that, 
when the principal says you're now the graduating class and you believe it to be true, if you can believe the preacher when he says, I now pronounce you man and wife, then why can't you believe God who cannot lie? Do you know that it's not a good thing to doubt? Just using that word, that should cause us to say something's not right. He doesn't want me to doubt. He wants me to discern and know. But this matter of doubting, that's unbelief. Unbelief is the mother of all sin. Unbelief is an insult to God. All right, so how can I know? How can I know? How can you know that you're saved? Go back to 1 John 5 and let's look at it. Verse 11, and this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Verse 12, he that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. Verse 13, these things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye'd keep believing. Just keep in that place of depending. Abide, stay put. But notice verse 13, these things have I written, written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know. Look at me. How does a person get saved? By depending upon Jesus. How does a person then know? that they're saved. You ready? By depending upon what he says. These things have I written unto you. You know how I know that I'm saved? Because you're a preacher? Absolutely not. I've known enough preachers. I gave that testimony Saturday morning just a month ago there in Missouri. A retired preacher whose wife had died. He's gone through certain seasons in his life and he told me, he says, I've been doubting my salvation. I wouldn't trust the best five minutes of my life as assurance of my salvation. You know how I know that I'm saved? Because he said so. Because he said so. Here's one of my favorite said so verses. Let's go to it. We're going to turn to it. Can you do that? John 6 and verse 47. Let's turn over there to it. I get saved by depending upon Jesus. I know that I'm saved only because he said so. Notice in John 6, 47, somebody have it? Somebody read it for me. There we go. Let's all read it together. Ready? Verse 47, Jesus said, verily, verily, that's truly, truly, ready? Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. You see what Jesus is saying? He said, if there was ever a time you put your faith, trust, dependence on him. He didn't say believe about me, believe on me. You put your faith, trust, dependence upon him. Jesus said, at that moment, present tense, you were given everlasting life. How long does everlasting last? Forever. So a person who's struggling and doubting as to whether or not they're saved, all right, in the invitation. Let's say a deacon comes forward in the invitation and says, I'm not sure if I'm saved. I was preaching a meeting up in uh, Wisconsin many years ago and the assistant pastor came to me during the invitation. There were a lot of people at the altar and he said, I'm doubting my salvation. 
I want to tell you why he was doubting his salvation. He was doubting his salvation because he had been flirting with the Reformed theology. He was very confused about it. But then let's say there's somebody who's never been to church and they, except maybe once or twice, Christmas, Easter, over the last 20 years, they come forward in the invitation and they say, I'm not sure if I'm saved. And so here we have a deacon. There in Wisconsin, we had an assistant pastor. Here we have somebody who's only been to church a couple of times. They don't even have a Bible with them. And they all say, I'm not sure if I'm saved. Well, how am I going to help them know that they're saved? I can't give them assurance. I cannot. No preacher can give assurance. It's not that I don't want to. It's that I can't. I can tell you you're saved, but it's not going to give you the assurance in your soul. It can't. Why? Because my words are not life-giving words. I don't have the authority because I didn't give it. I didn't create it. The only way I can help a deacon, an assistant pastor, a pastor, or somebody who's never been to church as to whether or not you have salvation is to start in the same place. Was there ever a time in your life where you knew sin was the problem, hell was the consequence, Jesus was the answer? Was there ever a time where you were sick of your sin? You didn't want to go to hell. You knew you needed Jesus. Was there ever a time you put your faith, trust, dependence upon him to save you? And if they say, yes, that happened. I did do that. Then I remind them, here's what Jesus says. He gave you everlasting life. He says you have everlasting life but I don't feel it. I'm still not sure what everlasting life feels like. But that's what he says. So what is it that you have? I don't know. Well, what does he say? I have everlasting life. I will often say to people, I put my finger on it. There's nothing magical about the finger, but it helps me. And I'm often telling Jesus, you said it, you said it. You say that I was given everlasting life, which means today when I woke up, I have everlasting life. And if I wake up tomorrow, guess what I have? Everlasting life. Well, aren't you special? No, what he says is special. That's what he says. That's what he says. See, salvation answers the question, how do I get eternal life? By depending upon Jesus. Assurance answers the question, how can I know it? By depending upon what he's written. I can only trust what he says. Now, here's what revival preaching is about. Here's what discipleship is about. It answers the question, how do I live it? But you can't confuse discipleship living with the matter of getting saved. Uh, see, a lot of these tests, I mentioned tests of salvation. There's a lot of them that people will use. First um, John, do you love the brethren? Well, most of us are going to hell if it was hinging upon whether or not we love the brethren. <laughs> Chastisement, have you been chastised? Only when I come to church, I feel like. Uh, I mean, they'll go down through these tests. All right, but here's the problem with the test. Are they evidences of salvation? Sure. Are there evidences when a person gets saved? Of course. But here's the problem with the evidences or the test to know whether you're saved. They all require a matter of time. So at the invitation, somebody comes, wants to be saved, 
Larry Mooney kneels down with them, talks to them about their salvation. He comes up and says, preacher, this person wants to tell you something. And I say, well, did, did God deal with you about something? That person says, yes, I got saved. If you died right now, where would you go? You've heard these, these questions. They'd say, I go to heaven. If you die five years from now, where would you go? They say, well, I think I go to heaven. If you had died yesterday, where would you have gone? They'd say, I would have gone to hell. Are you sure that you are going to heaven? Do you know for sure you have eternal life? Well, I, 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 I'm not sure. I think so. Well, well uh, how, preacher, can I know? And if I were to ask them, well, here's how to really know if this is real. Here's how to know if this is true. Do you love the brethren? And they say, I don't even know who those are. Have you been chastened of God? I don't know what that means. Do you have fruit in your life? Because if you have no fruit, then there's no root. Good preaching, but it's not going to help that person who just got off their knees 30 seconds ago. See, I'm not saying that there are no evidences. I'm saying that whatever you're going to hang your hat on and get assurance, I want to skip the five. I want to skip the three. I want to get to the one infallible test as to whether or not I'm saved. And if this test that we're using, if it's not going to help a person who's been saved for 30 seconds, why would I want to use it for someone who's been supposedly saved for 30 years and struggling. Do you know what God uses to help those in 1 John know that they're saved? He says, look at what I've written. And what he wrote is, if you have the Son, you have life. And he said in John 6, Believe on me, you have present tense everlasting life. And I can say to somebody who just got up off their knees or come out of the counseling room, if you died right now, if you died five years from now, where are you going to go? And they say heaven. And I say, how do you know that? The only answer they can truly give is this one. Because he said so. That's the only answer. What else are they going to say? Well, I've lived a good life these past 35 seconds. No, no, nothing else is going to work. It's because he said so. See, I understand, however, some preachers and some others are concerned. Well, I'm tired of people claiming to be saved and not living like it. Me too. But that's why the bulk of the Bible is about how to follow him. That's why Jesus said, get clean and get connected. That's why Jesus said, no man can, should put his hand to the plow looking back because you're not fit for the kingdom. He didn't say you're not going. He just says we're not fit for it. That's why he says that no man can follow me unless he deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. In other words, he's telling us how to live it salvation, how to get eternal life, assurance, how do I know it, revival preaching, discipleship preaching, it's how to live it. You know the answer in all three is the same? How do I get saved? Faith in Jesus. How do I know that I'm saved? Faith in what Jesus says. How do I live it? Faith in His power. That's why He says abide in me. That's what Peter's saying. That's what Paul's saying in Ephesians 5 and Galatians 5. It's faith. It's saying, I can't, 
but you can. Dependence upon Him. I love the, the, um, the illustration so often that is given in the Bible, and you've heard me use I can't get away from it because it's there in the Bible, it's just in my brain. A lot of times people will, will get saved again because they want a, they, they want a new record. They want to get rid of the, those infractions on their record. It's made their insurance go up. And maybe if I get saved again. I've known people to get saved again so they didn't get kicked out of a church. Oh, that's a whole other bad theological discussion. But you know, you can't get saved again. But a lot of times they're looking at, well, there's no way I could have done these things unless I was really saved. And I've used the illustration. Suppose a couple comes to me and says, we need marriage counseling. We're in bad shape. The husband says, she doesn't listen to me. She won't submit. She throws pots and pans. We've got holes in the drywall because she burst out in anger. She says, but he's always yelling at me, bossing me around. He doesn't love me. And Never does he listen and take my consideration, my feelings into consideration. And furthermore, our children are a mess. They don't obey us. They don't honor us. Our home is a wreck. And I say, well, let me get this picture straight. You know what the Bible says about husbands love your wife, and you're telling me your husband doesn't do that? And she says, that's exactly what I'm saying. And I say to him, and I said, sir, you understand that the Bible says wives submit to their own husband. You're telling me she doesn't do that. And he says, that's right. She's not doing that. And you understand the Bible says children are to obey and honor in Ephesians 6. And you're telling me that's not happening. And they both say, that's what we're saying. That's not, we're, in, we're a mess. And I say, well, I'm here to help you. I've got some good news for you. You're not a real family. You're not even married. Because if you're married, the Bible says, husbands love your wife, wife submit to your husband, children obey and honor. And that's not happening, that's not happening. You're not married. But if you would really, really get married, then you would see the difference. And if you want to get it settled right now by the power invested in me, we can do it right now. Will you take this woman to be your lawfully wedded wife? Will you take this man and will you, for better or worse, say I do, I do, they do, and I say they did? Mm. Now let me ask you a question. Is it going to change their marriage? But it happens over and over and over and over. And while we think it's innocent when it comes to the matter of salvation, every time you doubt what God has declared, we are calling him a liar. Let me ask you to take your hymnal. Would you do this and turn with me to him? 404. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. I love the second. 
when darkness veils his lovely face. Remember we talked about the storms Wednesday night? I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. I love this one. His oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. Why? Because on Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground, all other test is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. It's enough. Whatever he says, it's enough. Well, we want people's lives to be changed. So does he. We want marriages to be real. But if we have a new marriage ceremony every week for you, it's not going to change your marriage. And going through the Getting saved part that's ever so simple is not the answer. Look at it. Figure it out. Did you put your faith and trust in Jesus? If you did, depend upon what he says. If you didn't, trust him. Let's stand together, please.